Josh's sermons, and I thought he did really well and fed you well, so happy to serve alongside with him. So this morning, we continue our series on the Beatitudes, and uh, if you want to turn your Bibles to that, this is Matthew 5, um, and if you're using your Black Pew Bible, this will be page 809, 809 in your Black Pew Bible. If, if you don't have a Bible at home, please take one of ours and be happy for you to have one at home and read it on your own. We'd rather you have God's Word in, at your house and be able to use it freely if you would like. Uh, we're looking at the Beatitudes, and the question we're asking throughout this series is, what does Jesus say it means to be blessed? What does Jesus say it means to be blessed? If we look at the posts and tweets and pictures and look under the hashtag blessed, there are lots of different ideas, and, and some of you probably have been looking and, and see if what Josh and I are saying is actually true. And you probably have found it to be true that most of the time when we designate something as a blessing on social media, we mean a material possession or a human achievement, something that really stems from our own life, something that we can do for ourselves. And when we look at what Jesus means by being blessed, we get quite a different idea. Jesus says that we are blessed when we find ourselves to be poor in spirit. Uh, I'm going to dismiss the children. I forgot to do that. So I was on vacation, so I'm sorry. I, got, I, got, I need a couple of weeks to get into it. But children between 2 and 8 years old are released for Children's Church. And if you're new here, there will be somebody in the foyer to, to guide you and to tell you where to go. So Jesus says to be blessed is to be poor in spirit, to be empty spiritually. He says that we are blessed when we weep or mourn over sin in ourselves and around us. Jesus says that to be blessed or to have God's favor in your life means to be meek and to defer to God's power and His rule, His sovereignty. Jesus says that to be blessed is to desire righteousness and to show mercy and to have our hearts pure and to take on a role of, of a peacemaker. That's, that's the list. That's Jesus' list of what it means to be blessed by God, is to be those things, to be poor in spirit and, and pure in heart and a peacemaker. Now, that's not a list we see when we define what blessedness or happiness is. But Jesus says that these traits and experiences are conduits of God's blessings into your and my life. So according to Jesus, people who fit this description, this list from Matthew 5, are blessed by God, and God's favor remains on them even when they are persecuted for living in this way and lose their possessions and lose their achievements. So what I'm hoping is happening as we reflect on these verses together throughout this month and last month, is that we are pushed to examine ourselves and that our misconceptions of what it means to be blessed or happy are exposed and that we are discovering and embracing the kind of life that God has intended for us to live. That's my hope. That's my hope that we're all together doing that, that we're learning from Jesus what it means to live a life under God's favor, a life of blessedness. 
So today we're looking at the fifth beatitude, Matthew 5, verse 7 in your Bibles. Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So I was gone for two Sundays. I'm back from vacation, and I get to preach on the mercy of God. I, I can work with that. It makes me happy. This is good to be back and preach on this topic. So let me give you the definition of mercy, and then I'll explain how we're going to approach our text this morning. Well, quite simply, mercy is seeing and responding to the misery of others. Mercy is seeing, recognizing, and responding to the misery of others. And so Jesus is saying that we are blessed if we see and respond to the misery of other people around us. And we are blessed because God sees and responds to our misery. Now those two expressions of mercy, our expression of mercy towards others and God's expression of mercy towards us are connected. And we're going to take them one at a time. So we only have two points this morning. Number one, the merciful God, and number two, the merciful people. The merciful God and the merciful people. Now, why should we begin with God's mercy? Because if you are a careful reader of Scripture, and you look at the Beatitudes, you will realize that they all begin and are centered on God. Yes, we are the recipients of blessing, of course, this is beneficial to us, but it is God who is the source of these blessings. Pastor Josh, last two Sundays, helped us understand the logical progression of the Beatitudes. I think it's really important to see how each builds on the previous one. So first, there's poverty of spirit. So we come to God empty, and God gives us the kingdom. We look at our spiritual poverty and we weep over it. We mourn over it. And then God comforts us. We then respond to God's favor by meekness or deferring to his rule and trusting in his care of us. And as God changes us, we continue to hunger and thirst to be satisfied with God himself. Now you see how it starts with our emptiness and then God just fills us more and more. And so it goes deep as we realize how empty we are. And so God fills us more and more. But it also goes wide. As we start living like that, we are now in contact with other people. And what we have experienced with God being filled by Him now is spilling over into our relationships with others. So when we come to mercy, there's the same principle. It's clear that our being merciful stems from our experience of God's mercy towards us. In fact, in a parallel passage in Luke 6, Jesus says, be merciful as your Father is merciful. So our pattern, our source, our mercy is dependent on God's mercy. Being merciful is a disposition of someone who has experienced the mercy of God. <clears throat> now listen to Marlo Jones, who describes it this way. He says, if I know that I am a debtor to mercy alone, if I know that I am a Christian solely because of that free grace of God, 
There should be no pride left in me. There should be nothing vindictive. There should be no insisting upon my rights. Rather, as I look out upon others, if there's anything in them that is unworthy or that is a manifestation of sin, I should have this great sorrow for them in my heart. The man who truly realizes his position face to face with God and his relationship to God is the man who must of necessity be merciful with respect to others. Now, this is why I want to spend a lot of this sermon on describing God's mercy. Because the better we understand it, and the more we experience it ourselves, the more merciful we will be toward others. So let me talk about our merciful God. Do you remember in Exodus, Exodus 34, when Moses, Moses just asked God to reveal his glory to him? This, this dramatic moment, Moses wants to see God for who he really is. It's a dangerous request, as some of us know. And God then reveals himself to Moses, and God describes himself to Moses. God says that his nature, his identity, his name is the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. In fact, the same description comes up in Scripture over and over again. We read it in Joel this morning at Call to Worship. This is how God describes himself to us. So when we ask God, God, what are you like? Who are you? What's your identity? What's your nature? What's your essence? God says, I am the Lord, that's his covenant name, and I am merciful. Interesting that the first thing that God wants Moses to know about himself, as God self-defines himself, he self-identifies who he is, is his mercy. So in other words, for us to know who God is means to know that he is merciful. This is an essential quality of the divine character. And by the way, all three persons of the Trinity possess this quality. So what I want to do is I want to describe God to you in terms of His mercy. I want to describe God on the basis of His revelation in Scripture. And I want to give us a picture of just how merciful God is. As we get that picture, we will be moved to be merciful towards others. And we'll talk about what that means at the end of the sermon briefly. But the main point is for us to get this picture of this this glorious picture of God's mercy in our minds. So God the Father is called the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. One writer said that God begets mercy, even generations of mercy from day to day. God is the source of mercy. He is constantly generating more and more mercy. The Father's mercies, as many of us know from experience, are new every morning. Like manna in the wilderness, right? We go out in the morning with our buckets and we we get mercy from our Father. And He never runs out. Every day there's enough mercy for us. There's a wealth of mercy at God's disposal. He never runs out of it. 
the Father is said to be rich in mercy. He is rich in mercy. He saw our misery and he responded to it. We were dead in our sins, going along with this world, enslaved to Satan, living in the passions of our flesh by nature, described as as children of wrath. But God, remember that, right? Remember Ephesians 2, but God. So that's our condition, our misery. But God, who saw our misery, is now responding to it with mercy. In that description, the next word is mercy. But God being rich in mercy, what moves him to respond to our misery? It's his mercy. It's his great love for us. And so he responds to our misery by making us alive. Even when we were dead, he makes us alive. He saves us, he raises us up, and he seats us in the heavenly places with Christ so that he might show us, excuse me, the immeasurable, the immeasurable riches of his grace. That's mercy. God saw our misery and responded to it by setting in motion his great plan of salvation. The father does not look away from the misery of his children. The father does not run away from us. In fact, he runs toward us, ready to embrace us and bless us. He is our merciful father. Karl Barth says, God has mercy on us. He says yes to us. He wills to be on our side, to be our God against all odds. Indeed, against all odds, because we do not deserve this mercy. Because as we rightly suppose, we, he should say no to us all. But he does not say no, he says yes. He's not against us, he is for us. This is God's mercy. Contrary to human mercy, even in its kindness, kindest expression, God's mercy is almighty. It is almightily saving and helpful. It brings light, peace, and joy. We need not be afraid that it might be limited or have strings attached. His yes is unequivocal, never to be reversed into no. That's God's mercy, the Father's mercy to us. Scripture describes our misery to which God responds in mercy in very graphic terms in the Old Testament. When God found us, we were like a baby, abandoned, rejected, left to die all alone. The baby had just been born. The umbilical cord has not been cut. The baby has not been cleaned or wrapped in a blanket. No mother was holding her or nursing her. No father was there to take pictures and pray over her. And that is an accurate image of our miserable spiritual condition. Helpless, dying, abandoned. But the father saw our misery and he was moved by it. And he responded in mercy. He found us in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled us. He cared for us. He kept us as the apple of his eye. 
That's mercy. But what else did God do? He came, came to our rescue. The Father came to help this, this desperate baby. What else did He do? He took the baby and brought it into His home, into His family, and adopted her, adopted us. He brought us home to Himself, forever connecting us to Him as now our adoptive Father, our merciful Father. I wonder if you know this Father of mercies. Do you? Have you experienced this love, this mercy from Him? Now when the Father decided to save us, the Son, God the Son, agreed to execute this plan of redemption. Jesus Christ is our merciful Savior. The old hymn says, He loved His Father's throne above, so free, so infinite His grace, emptied Himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all immense and free, for, oh my God, it found out me. Amazing love. How can it be, right, that thou, our God, wouldst die for me? How can it be that my Savior would do something like that for me? Jesus saw us harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he was moved with compassion. In his gut, he was moved with compassion. There was mercy swelling up in him. And mercy always involves sacrifice. And you see, Christ's mercy is so great that the only sacrifice that appropriately reflects the vastness of his mercy is himself. So he gave himself up for us. He saw our misery and gave himself up for us. When Jesus went on the cross... It was in response to our misery. His death meant our life. To save us from our misery, Jesus put himself in our place. We were dying, so to save us from death, Jesus died in our place. That is our merciful Savior. Do you know him? I wonder if you are familiar with the mercy of Christ. You may have heard this story before, a version of this story. I got it from Anne Lamott's book, Bird by Bird, but I think it's been around in other sources as well. An eight-year-old boy had a younger sister who was dying of leukemia, and he was told that without a blood transfusion, she would die, in fact. His parents explained to him that his blood was probably compatible with hers, and if so, he could be the blood donor for his sister. They asked him if they could test his blood. He said, sure. So they did, and it was a good match. Then they asked if he would give his sister a pint of blood, that it could be her only chance of living. He said he would have to think about it overnight. And he did. The next day, he went to his parents and said that he was willing to donate his blood. So they took him to the hospital where he was put on a gurney beside his six-year-old sister. Both of them were hooked up to IVs. A nurse withdrew a pint of blood from the boy. 
which was then put in the girl's IV. The boy lay in his gurney in silence while the blood dripped into his sister until the doctor came over to see how he was doing. Then the boy opened his eyes and asked, Doctor, how soon until I start to die? You see, he was thinking this was the sacrifice of his life for his sister. It's a hard story to tell because you see what was happening in the heart of the little boy. Now, our Savior is a brother like that. Our Savior went to the cross and offered the biggest sacrifice to cover the biggest offense against the Holy God. Jesus, our brother. We need to be using that terminology more. He is our brother. Paid for our lives with his blood. We are in God's home because our brother left his father's home to find us. We are part of God's family, fully accepted, loved, secure in our relationship with God because Jesus was rejected. Scripture tells us that he was treated as sin. Scripture records that he cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knew exactly what was involved and yet willingly went on the cross for us. That is mercy. I wonder if you know that kind of mercy. I wonder if you have experienced the Savior's mercy yourself. I want us to see just how great the sacrifice of Christ is. There's a lot of mercy on the cross. So if you're struggling with your sins today, and you are thinking that your sins are too great, you've messed up too many times, even after you have experienced Christ's mercy and went back to sin, or maybe you have nursed the secret sin for decades now, Whatever that is, and you are feeling the guilt, and you are feeling the hopelessness and despair, and thinking, there's, there's not a chance God would forgive me. Maybe others, but not me. Because you have seen the ugliness of yourself. You have seen the sin in your heart. And maybe you are, in a real sense, feel that God is unable to forgive you. That you are unforgivable. Whatever you have done, thought, felt, to you may feel like it's outside of the scope of God's mercy. We would do well to remember what Richard Sibbs said. He said, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. If you come discouraged today and, and you feel hopeless, you feel it's just too much for God to cover. It's just too much for God to deal with, knowing who you are and knowing what you've done and felt and thought. Please remember the vastness of Christ's sacrifice. It is much, much bigger than your sin. And there's always more mercy on the cross than sin in your heart. Always. There's a divine being that gave his life to cover your sin, your human sin. His sacrifice is always going to be greater than anything you have done or thought or felt. So I wonder if you know the power of his sacrifice. 
I wonder if what I'm saying is resonating with you as you are considering your own sin and, and maybe feeling discouraged and guilty and crushed by the law. And now I'm telling you about grace and mercy. I wonder if that makes you happy. If that releases you from that guilt. If that gives you hope. Can you resonate with these things? That is a sign that God is working in your life. That you are no longer bound by your sin. But grace is not op now operative in your life. And it's changing you. God is changing you. Please don't leave discouraged today. Don't leave thinking you don't belong here or you don't belong with God. There's always more mercy in Christ than sin in you. That's the merciful Savior. And then there's God the Holy Spirit. He is called our comforter. Our comforter. Someone who comes alongside and counsels and comforts and corrects. He is not like a therapist whom I can see for an hour every other week, which could be very helpful. He's not like a guidance counselor that you go when you have a problem in school. He's not like a social worker or a lawyer, somebody who's there to help you, but to help you a little bit, to help you sometimes. The Holy Spirit is God himself who has committed himself to walk alongside you for the rest of your life and into eternity with all the resources of God to help you and to show mercy to you. So God, the Holy Spirit, also sees your misery and is saying, I'm going to respond to it by connecting myself to this person forever, indwelling that person, being in the person, with the person, among the people of God, so that God's mercy can keep flowing into your life. It's the Spirit who makes us alive in Christ. Let me be very clear on this point. No one experiences the Father's forgiveness or accepts Christ's sacrifice as effective to remove their guilt unless the Spirit convinces them of the truth of the gospel. Unless the Spirit transforms their nature Unless the Spirit opens their eyes to see God's mercy toward them, the Spirit applies God's mercy to our hearts. And unless He does that, we are hopeless. And as we respond by faith to Christ's work on the cross and the Spirit's work in us, the transformation of our nature, the Spirit remains in us, He remains with us, He continues to change us, he keeps reminding us of the Father's great love for us. The Spirit, Scripture says, pours the Father's love into our hearts. I think that's an experiential thing. I think the Holy Spirit is reminding us that the Father still loves us, even though I don't feel like it this morning, but the Father still loves us, regardless of what I'm doing or feeling or thinking. The Holy Spirit confirms that that new covenant is still in effect, that I haven't been able to break it, that I haven't been able to get away from God, that He is still with me, He hasn't given up on me. The Holy Spirit speaks the gospel to me and to you if you're a believer, continues to draw yourself to the Father. And so it is by the Spirit power that we can pray, Abba, Father, and not just say the words, but feel that those words are true, that I'm actually talking to God who is my Father, who's adopted me into his family, into his home. I'm fully accepted with him. 
welcome, loved, blessed by him. So as we learn to live in this new reality, as God's adopted children, as sinners saved by grace, it's the Spirit of God who teaches us to do that. That's mercy. He doesn't have to do that. It's mercy because he sees our misery and he responds to it. He sees us wandering around in the dark, right? You remember when you first became a Christian and you opened the Bible and you said to yourself, I don't understand anything in this book. Especially if you started with Leviticus. <laughs> but as you read it, the Holy Spirit is teaching you. And all of a sudden, this book becomes precious. There are now truths in that book that make all sorts of sense to you, that speak into very particular life situations and change you. What's happened? The Holy Spirit has been teaching you. He's been explaining the truth to you. There are things that at first you don't understand, things you don't like, things that don't make sense. And then in time, the Holy Spirit trains you to live differently. And so now you come to worship, and there are times when you say, there's no other place I'd rather be than here, singing to God. And you might even raise your hand every once in a while. You are so overwhelmed. You might even clap on beat every once in a while. <laughs> because the Holy Spirit is working in your heart. Something that before did not appeal to you at all. None of these songs made any sense to you before conversion, and yet now those are precious ways to communicate with God and express what you feel and think about Him. The Holy Spirit is the seal, the pledge, the guarantee of our inheritance. What that means is that His presence and influence in our lives proves that God will not give up on us, that God will remain merciful, and that we will receive mercy on that last day. That is our merciful comforter. I wonder if you know him. I wonder if he is active in your life. I wonder if you have been and are being changed by the Spirit of God, by his mercy. It is this kind of mercy, the Father's mercy, the Son's mercy, the Spirit's mercy. It is this kind of mercy of God that makes us merciful. It's this kind of experience of this kind of divine mercy that changes us. It's this kind of mercy, this rich, loving mercy. The kind of mercy that finds an abandoned baby in the howling waste of the wilderness and adopts her into the family. It's this kind of sinner-loving and rebel-sparing, slave-freeing mercy that changes us. It's this holding nothing back all the way mercy that God has. It's this Christ-crucifying, blood-soaked, death-defeating mercy. Oh, this mercy is hell-defying, death-canceling, filth-cleansing, sin-killing, serpent-crushing, in-your-face Satan kind of mercy that changes us. It's the mercy that is nature-transforming, new life-giving, eye-opening kind of mercy. This tender and patient 
mercy. This mercy that comes new, fresh each day. This sure and trustworthy and reliable mercy because God is reliable. His mercies are new every morning. Great is His faithfulness, His reliability, His trustworthiness. That is the mercy of God to us. So I wonder if that is your experience. If you know what I'm talking about, if you have sensed that, if you have taken it in, if you have been changed by this kind of mercy. And if you have, you are and you will be a merciful person. Because the mercy of God is just that powerful. It will change you and it will make you a different kind of person. So let's talk about what being merciful means. I'm going to give you a quote from Bonhoeffer who lived, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who lived at a time where there wasn't a lot of mercy unless the church stepped up. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer is describing how Christians respond to God's mercy by being merciful themselves. He says, as if their own needs and their own distress were not enough. They take upon themselves the distress and humiliation and sin of others. They have an irresistible love for the downtrodden, the sick, the wretched, the wronged, the outcast, and all who are tortured with anxiety. They go out and seek all who are enmeshed in the toils of sin and guilt. No distress is too great, no sin too appalling for their pity. If any man falls into disgrace, the merciful will sacrifice their own honor to shield him and take his shame upon themselves. They will be found consorting with publicans and sinners, careless of the shame they incur thereby. In order that they may be merciful, they cast away the most priceless treasure of human life, their personal dignity and honor. For the only honor and dignity they know is their Lord's own mercy, to which alone they owe their very lives. He was not ashamed of his disciples. He became the brother of mankind and bore their shame unto the death of the cross. That is how Jesus the crucified was merciful. His followers owe their lives entirely to that mercy. It makes them forget their own honor and dignity and seek the society of sinners. They are glad to incur reproach, for they know that they are blessed. One day, God himself will come down and take upon himself their sin and shame. He will cover them with his own honor and remove their disgrace. It will be his glory to bear the shame of sinners and to clothe them with his honor. Blessed are the merciful, for they have the merciful for their Lord. It gives you a glimpse, a description of how God's mercy changes us, makes us different. My question to all of us, and please, I am absolutely in the number of people I'm asking this question to. Does that describe your life? Does that describe my life? If somebody were to look at my life, would they say it is marked by mercy? Are we and am I merciful? Or are we like the man in one of Jesus' parables? Do you remember Matthew 18, the unforgiving servant? The man who owed 
a, an incredibly large amount of money to the king. Scholars tell us it's about $6 billion in modern money, $6 billion that he owed to the king. I think Jesus is looking for the biggest number he could think of to tell us just how great the debt was, how unpayable the debt was. And so he goes to the king and, and pleads with him because the king is ready to settle his accounts. And the king, being moved by mercy, being moved by compassion, forgives his servant. Now, what do you think happened to the six billion? Do you think it magically reappeared in the treasury of the king? No, he wrote it off as loss in order to forgive his subject. Now, this man who has been forgiven this incredible, fantastic amount of money, now he goes out and on the way home, he runs into another servant of the king, somebody who now owes him money. What he owes him is only $12,000 in modern money. Now, 12000 is a big amount. That's not pocket change for most of us. And yet, in comparison, right? In comparison to what he was just forgiven by the king, it's nothing. And yet he beats his fellow servant and demands the money and threatens him because he will not forgive him. He will not show mercy on his fellow servant. When you read a story like that, is that convicting to you? It is to me. There are many situations in my life where the mercy of God given to me is not properly reflected towards others. I will hold on to something so insignificant and I will not give up my honor or my dignity as Bonhoeffer writes, even though I have been given all of that through Christ absolutely by grace. Last week, or a little over a week ago, when the shootings in Orlando happened, talk about a particular one where 50 people, including the shooter, died, and then you go on social media and you see how people respond to it. And you, you can also watch TV, you can listen to the radio, you can see what the people respond with to a horrific tragedy like that. Based on what I saw on social media, many responded by praying for comfort for the survivors, the families of the victims. Some responded by helping, providing food or counseling or assisting law enforcement. Some responded by weeping. There were a lot of footage of people just crying, people who were not involved in the tragedy but yet hear about it and are moved by compassion. We need to acknowledge that, that many people responded in compassion and mercy. And yet, many others, including Christians, there were Christians on either side of this divide. Many others, including some Christians, responded by expressing hatred toward Muslims or the LGBT community. They picked a group and they just lashed out in anger, in disdain, in hatred. Some use this strategy to promote their political views, 
And let me be very clear, on both sides, I'm not picking on one side. Both sides, liberal or conservative, use this tragedy for their purposes, to use as leverage to push for a particular kind of legislation or to support a particular kind of candidate. How did you respond to the Orlando shooting? I can go on your web, web page or your Facebook page or your Twitter page and I will know. <laughs> right? You can go on mine and see because we record these things now. How did you respond? Did you respond in mercy? Did you respond in compassion? Whatever else may be happening, I'm not saying other topics are off limit. Of course, something like that exposes all sorts of problems in our society. And yes, we need to talk about all that. But what is your, what is your gut reaction? What is your heart response when you hear that 50 people are dead? What does Jesus say? Does Jesus say, blessed are the politically astute? Did he say, blessed are the I told you so? Does, does he say that? Does he say, blessed are those who can skillfully use this situation to promote Christian values? What does he say? He says, blessed are the merciful. Merciful. This, this was going through this experience has been very convicting for me. Because I felt so apart from that. I just honestly was not touched very much by it. Now, I think I have my views on this and I can have a conversation with you about it. But my heart wasn't really touched. I prayed a little bit, yes. But I, I didn't really pray. I wasn't really engaged. And I know why. The reason is because my heart was not sufficiently soaked in God's mercy so that I could respond in mercy when I see victims of sin. So that's an indictment on me, on my own spiritual life, my own spiritual world. I wonder how you did throughout this tragedy or any other. It doesn't have to be this one. When you see someone's misery, what is your gut reaction? How do you respond? I'm using this example to prompt us to examine our own heart. What do you see in your heart? Do you see mercy swelling for other people? In whatever area of life, whether locally, globally, in another part of the world, in your family, maybe in your own household, somebody who is struggling, someone who is hurting, someone who is in misery, whether through their own choices or the choices of others, but they are struggling, they are hurting. What is your reaction? What is my reaction? If I am changed by the mercy of God, my reaction will be mercy on them. There's other things, but it will certainly be mercy. And initially, should be mercy. Because I have been forgiven so much. God found me in the howling wasteland of the wilderness with no hope but Him, and He saved me. Right? 
if I, if I get this, if I remember that, then of course I would respond in mercy towards others. They too are hurting because of sin. Their sin, other people's sins, the brokenness of the world, whatever. But they're in the same condition as I was when God found me. Well, I'm going to finish with these. I'm, I'm going to give you just a few quick questions how to process what being merciful looks like in our world, in our, in our church. And so I remember the definition is mercy is seeing and responding to the misery of others. So how do we see and respond to the misery of others as God sees and responds to our misery? So I'm going to give you five quick pointers to process that. I hope that this produces discussion and reflection so we can all process what it means to be merciful uh, in our own lives. Number one, the merciful are present. The merciful are present. Let's not isolate ourselves from the misery of others. We live in the world where you can limit your experience of misery. So my question is, is your life, is my life, is the life of our church set up in such a way as to allow us to avoid contact with those who need mercy? Have you set up your life in such a way that you don't need to interact with people who are hurting, who are struggling, who need help? Where do you go to eat, to have coffee? Where do you work? Where do you take your walks? Do you go to places where you are likely to encounter people that will need your mercy? Now, this is intentional. It's not random. Number two, the merciful engage. The merciful are present, number one. Number two, the merciful engage. Are you getting involved with people and learning about them and getting into their lives even if you don't know how to actually help them? So you're there already. You're present in the world. Now the next step is you're getting deeper into that world. So you want more information. You want those relationships to deepen. You free yourself up so you can interact with them. How should we engage with others in our community? That's our question. right? We're here. We're present. We're in this area. Our church is here physically. Now, how do we engage with others around us? Are there groups in our community that we just need to engage with? Even if we don't know how to help them, how to connect with them, but we're going there openly and saying, we want to be with you, we want to help. Number three, the merciful forgive. Merciful are present, the merciful engage, and number three, the merciful forgive. Now, that's coming out of that Matthew 18 parable. If I have been forgiven much, I will also forgive others. There's a direct correlation with that. So the question is, are you a forgiving person? Changed by God's forgiveness, are you now a forgiving person? Now, there are two aspects to that. There's forgiveness in principle. And, and I think that's important to point out. So let me, let me explain this just, just for a second. When you look at a group of people, think about a group of people you don't like. Most of us have different groups we're thinking of right now. But a group of people, that just they just bother you. You just have a really hard time tolerating their existence. Think about them. And now please remember that in God's mercy, they are not outside of God's salvation. They are not. They are outside of your salvation. They are outside of your forgiveness, but they're not outside of God's forgiveness. So in principle, they are forgivable. They're not excluded. 
And so something that needs to change in our hearts is we need to include them back into our principled forgiveness. So we can start thinking of them as forgivable. So when you hear something on the news, your natural reaction is not hatred, but it is compassion and mercy. Because you know there may be people in that group that God loves in a saving way. And how can you hate someone whom God loves? How can you show judgment on someone on whom God shows mercy? But there's also a personal forgiveness. So in principle, we see everybody as forgivable, but personally, we need to practice forgiveness. Because we have been forgiven, we too forgive those who wrong us. Let me be very straightforward and specific. Is there someone in your life that you need to forgive? Is there someone in your life today that you need to forgive? You will not do it in your own power. You should not do it in your own power. But will you pursue forgiveness with that person? Number four, the merciful help. So the merciful are present, the merciful engage, the merciful forgive. And number four, the merciful help. God is generous and sacrificial in His mercy toward us. So we should also be generous and sacrificial in our mercy towards others. Let me tell you what this means. It means sharing money and time and resources and influence and emotions and space. If we are seeing someone's misery and responding to them and our heart goes out to them, following our heart should be our stuff and our time and everything else that we have. Because this is how God does it. When God showed mercy on us, He brought us into His house. And He says, everything that I have is now yours. You are now co-heir with my perfect son, Jesus. Everything that I have, you now have a part in. Should that be not the same for us when we share mercy on someone else? Here we are, we have resources, we have time, we have emotional energy, we have connections, we have influence. And so now we share that with others who need it. What Nikki is doing by going to Romania and volunteering at a Johnny and Friends family retreat is exactly what mercy looks like. It's not the only way mercy looks like, but it is one of the ways. She's going to go and help. She's going to give her time and her money and her knowledge and her experience to others. And she's not doing that because there's benefit for her although there will be a tremendous benefit for her in God's grace. Now, most of you will not go to a Johnny and Friends camp. That's okay. But where in your life are you helping others? Are you given of your time and money and resources and influence? And finally, the merciful share the hope of God's mercy. The merciful share the hope of God's mercy. We know that the greatest misery is remaining separated from God by sin. That is the greatest misery, is to be separated from God. So isn't the greatest mercy to tell someone how to experience reconciliation with God through Christ? Does it sound simple? Yeah, it is. When I see someone apart from Christ, should I not tell them how they can be with Christ? I know, because I have been brought to Christ, and so now I can share it with others. Who are the people in your life that you have been withholding this mercy from? That you know, but you've never shared the gospel with them. Your neighbors, your co-workers, 
People in your own house. Some people that you know well. Some people that know you well. And you assume they know what you believe. They may not know. People that you see every day at work. Give them that mercy. Show them that mercy of telling them how much God loves them. Well, I got to wrap up. So we're going to come to communion. And how do you know if you're supposed to be at this table? How do you know if you are welcome here at this table? We define it as any follower of Christ can come. But how do you know if you're a true follower of Christ? Well, this text gives us a hint. You know, it says that blessed are the merciful because they, for they shall receive mercy. And some people look at it and say, well, that means that if I show mercy to others, then God will show mercy to me. So the condition of God's mercy towards me is my mercy towards others. So if I do these things, if I treat others well, if I give money to the poor, then God will do the same for me and then God will love me because I have loved others. The problem with that is that it goes against everything else in Scripture. So what does this mean? I'd like to give you another way of putting it. We must see our being merciful not as a condition of our receiving God's mercy, but as a sign. It's not a condition, it's a sign. It's not if, it's as. As I see mercy in my own heart, I am assured that I will receive mercy in the end. In other words, if you have examined your heart and you're saying, God is doing things in my heart that I can't explain. I feel these things towards people. I am moved by the misery of others. I am, I am living differently because of what God has done for me. That is a sign. This is part of God's assurance in your life that you are His, that He is working with you, that He will preserve you until the day of judgment. The merciful exhibit by their own mercy that they have entered into a different way of life, into a different economy. This is the economy of grace. So you are no longer living based on the economy of the law and wrath. You're living based on the economy of grace. You operate under the new covenant principles, and thus you are already under God's mercy. So those who live in this economy of mercy are those who are assured that God's mercy will be theirs on the day of judgment. So the question is, if you see that change in your heart, then if you do, you're welcome at this table. If you believe in Jesus and you have seen God work in your life, this is for you. You are welcome here. You don't have to be part of our church. You just have to be part of Christ. And we want you to come and be reminded of God's mercy again. I'll finish with this. I know I've said it three times already, but this is the finish. A visitor was seeking to console the dying Thomas Hooker. Thomas Hooker was, you may know, history, and he was the founder of Connecticut. He's an old Puritan. And he was dying, and somebody came to him, and well-meaning visitors said, Sir, you are going to receive the reward of your labor. And Hooker replied, Brother, I am going to receive mercy. He wasn't looking towards rewards. He was looking towards mercy. He's seen God work in his life. He was assured of God's love for him, and that's what he was looking Toward. If you are like that, if you're looking toward God's mercy, if you've experienced His mercy through Christ, come to the table. We're going to pray and we're going to take communion together. You can come forward, take it up front or take it back to your seats. If you are unable to come forward, please raise your hand. One of the elders will bring communion to you. If you're out in the balconies, 
please just come forward where you are. There are tables set up to take communion for you there. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you that you are the Father of mercies. Jesus, we praise you.